Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today, Heather McDonald. Oh, I don't know if you've read Heather McDonald, but if you haven't, you must. The woman's got facts. She has done her homework and her research. And you look at her academic history. That explains it. (laughs) That's, I guess, how one gets into Yale for one's BA and Cambridge for one's master's and Stanford for one's JD. She's a lawyer, too. Uh, So very, very smart woman. What's interesting about her is she just, yes, she has data, but B, she is, she comes from things from just a new perspective. You'll hear it in this interview, like she She's going to come at things from areas where you didn't expect her to come from. And you learn from Heather. You you, heard, you hear a different point of view, right? One that you don't hear from every talking point or talking head on cable news or, you know, the, the normal journals you go to. Anyway, so loved this discussion. I was planning on doing this whole thing with her on cops. We didn't even get to cops. We didn't even get to it because we had so much to go over. Uh, anyway, I know you're going to find that interview fascinating and Heather fascinating. Uh, She's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. She writes for City Journal, which you know I love, among other places. And she's written several amazing, amazing books, including The Diversity Delusion from 2018, which I recommend. The War on Cops, 2016, also recommend. Are Cops Racist, 2010. Can you believe we didn't get to cops? So much to go over, but it's a whole other show. We did get to so much else going on in the news, and we'll start it in 60 seconds. McDonald. I haven't been this excited since Douglas Murray came on. Oh, man. Well, that's a little scary. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll put Douglas Murray out of, our, out of our minds for now. But thank you so much for having me on. Let's start here. There, I read a really great piece by Wilford Riley in Tablet Magazine uh, yesterday, and he called it the assault on empiricism. And this is a subtitle from crime to climate change, the hostility of movements to data is making it impossible to address real world problems. He's talking about how we're living in a post-truth world and how it's really affecting our ability to make important decisions and have important discussions on things that matter, from COVID to crime. Um, You've been railing about this too. There are actual data that we can consult to solve a lot of our problems. When it doesn't line up with, quote, the narrative, we ignore it. So let's start there and on COVID. Because even though you're a conservative and you you write a lot of stuff that conservatives love, you're taking on both sides in their refusal 
to not get hysterical when it comes to COVID disinformation. Can you explain? For a while, it seemed like progressives had cornered the market on hysterical, anti-rational policymaking. For the majority of the COVID period, uh, we have seen the biggest failure of policymaking in American history. Our leaders have refused to balance costs and benefits. They have focused monomaniacally on one kind of risk, which is the risk from COVID, ignoring the costs of lockdowns on much more serious aspects of human life, such as child development, uh, the, the very possibility of economic activity and, and the creation of economic and human capital. Uh, they've told us, you know, they've kept us focused on rising case counts, ignoring the fact that deaths still are not comparable really to cancer deaths or heart disease. And so we were given again and again phony data and and hysterical rhetoric from the media and indeed the public health establishment to really uh, keep the population in fear. And and sadly, it was a very docile population. Uh, Mm. My my biggest obsession is the idea of wearing masks outdoors, which has zero scientific basis for it. You simply cannot get infected outdoors. Uh, Infection requires a concentrated viral dose. And yet you still see people, at least here in Irvine, California, jogging by themselves with nobody for the next square mile wearing outdoor masks. And I despair. I despair at the at the ignorance of the populace and their willingness to engage in this safetyism ideology. But recently, uh, to my dismay, some of my fellow conservatives have engaged in the same sort of irrational innumeracy in trying to present the vaccine as a threat uh, greater than COVID, which it clearly is not. Uh, the it, people that are vaccinated have a virtually zero risk of dying from COVID. They have a minimal risk of even getting infected by COVID. And yet the anti-vaxxing movement uh, is is refusing to balance those risks and and has reversed itself. It rightly conservatives were rightly celebratory at Trump's rapid development, Operation Warp Speed of the vaccine. That was a, a medical miracle, and they and they accused they even accused the drug car companies of putting off their application for emergency authorization until after the election, because at that point, conservatives thought that developing a vaccine was a good thing that would help Trump, and rightly so. Now they're portraying the vaccine as this globalist conspiracy to kill millions of people because it's being administered under Biden. So both sides now, I think, have basically lost their minds uh, and and are taking us in a direction that is not science-based. I think anecdotally that there's a faction on the right that's doing that. I think most Republicans would say, okay, you know, the vaccines work. It's not it's not a small number that's that's doubtful and skeptical about the vaccines, though. It's not. Whereas I will say when it comes to masking on the left, there's just I, I think they've captured most of the left 
you know, sort mm-hmm. of may- maybe some center lefties are are more on the side of reason when it comes to the indoctrination in schools and the masking and the obsession with vaccines for children under the age of 12, even now that they're really pushing for. I don't know. I just feel like the hysteria on the left is still louder when it comes to COVID. Well, that's true. And what I find so amazing about this alleged third wave of Delta is that I would have thought by now that progressives would just be sick of it, as I am, would be just fed up and say, to hell with it, let's take our chances. And yet Mm -hmm. they seem prepared to do this endlessly, indefinitely. There's there's no end in sight. And clearly the authorities are itching for the opportunity to shut things down again. I generally believe, Megan, in taking people at their words and not going to a second level of moving into sort of conspiracy theory explanations that are more abstract than the stated reasons. The stated reasons in this case for the lockdowns uh, are an excessive uh, obsession with one particular type of risk. It's safetyism. It's it's as, as the late and unlamented Governor Cuomo said at the beginning of the pandemic, if we save just one life from these lockdowns, they will have been worth it. Well, that is, of course, a, an absurd calculation because there's lots of activities that we undertake, such as driving on highways, that we know will generate about 40,000 deaths a year. If we wanted to save just one life from highway deaths, we would shut down highways. We go forward because we have balanced the risks and the costs. Um, but at this point, the the left seems prepared to, to do this indefinitely without any kind of balancing of risk and costs. It is, it is quite astounding to me. And mm-hmm. the, the costs in the long term are going to be very, very high. They already are. What I'm most concerned about Megan, is the widening of the academic skills gap. We know that Black and Hispanic children uh, have been the less least involved in education. They have not had the learning pods that more affluent parents uh, have created for their kids. And the wider that the academic skills gap grows, uh, the bigger the excuse that we're going to give to the left to claim that any economic and socioeconomic disparities are due to racism rather than that academic skills gap and, and behavioral differences. Mm-hmm. That they that they helped create uh, by by these lockdowns, these interminable lockdowns. I mean, I, the thing that's sticking in my craw is when they reopened public schools in New York and it took forever. I mean, I have lots of friends who have kids in the public school system in New York who are just at their wits end with the nonstop closures. And by the end of the year, my one's friend, my one friend's uh, kid was going to school four hours a week, four hours. And still these teachers were out there protesting, Heather, with caskets saying, you know, if you force us to go back in there, we're going to be in caskets. And then it turns out 40 percent of those teachers have refused to get vaccinated. Forty percent of the ones with the little caskets are like, "Mm, I'm not going to take it. Let's see. We'll we'll bargain. We'll bargain over it, said Randy Weingarten. They want money. Well, let's not forget the healthcare workers. I frankly was nauseated from day one at the at the outbreaks of horn blowing and 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 gong pounding that happened every night at seven p.m. in in New York that lasted for months and months. And healthcare workers are just as vaccine resistant as teachers. You know, I've I've often thought that conservatives are too quick to demonize teachers. I think in many cases 
we don't want to talk about the challenges they face with kids that are completely unsocialized thanks to the breakdown of the family. And we blame the teachers unions uh, for things that maybe be beyond their fix sometimes uh, because America turns its eyes away from the breakdown in black inner cities. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that the reaction of teachers unions to this pandemic and their complete self-involvement, as you say, Megan, has really sort of pulled the, the, the veils away from my eyes. And I would think would discredit them completely in the eyes of the public across the board. I'm not sure that's happened, but it certainly should happen uh, because they are acting with just, again, scientifically ungrounded self-interest and showing themselves not at all interested in the development and education of children. Yeah. And it doesn't matter now. It's almost it's almost across the board. You've got governors like DeSantis and Abbott in Florida and Texas pushing back on some of this. But even in the South, in the legit South, we're seeing them go along with these mandatory masks for children. And you would think that they would be a little bit more right leaning. No, we Clay Travis was in the news this week. He's you know taken over. He and, and Buck Sexton for Rush Limbaugh, most of Rush's markets. And he stood up and said, we don't want mandatory masking for our kids. Well, the school board voted seven to three against him. Mandatory mask coming back to Tennessee um, and where he is. And then we saw this is in Oklahoma, Heather, Oklahoma, the school board, because the school boards, they seem just as leftist as as Biden and his administration. When I whenever I hear a school board, I'm always stunned at who gets on there. And the right needs to start fighting back. The people who are on the side of reason forget left or right. Listen to this school board member. Her name is Linda Sexton, um, who is very upset that um, there might be some parents who want to send their kids to school without a mask. I want to pursue the legal avenues that we have to defy Governor Stitt because it's just not okay for kids to commit murder by coming to school without a mask. And when it comes down to it, it's possible. They will, ch they will cause a death of another child because they come to school without a mask. That's not okay. I don't know what we can do about it, but I hope it's something. We've got to think hard and we've got to think fast. So Linda's an idiot. <laughs> Heather, help me. I mean, we have learned something about the American psyche that is very depressing, Megan. Uh, any shred remaining of rugged individualism and a, a, a proper appreciation for risk, for entrepreneurship, for creation for the drive that makes civilization possible has disappeared from a vast portion of the population, not everybody. But what I think this shows us is how fast and wide the feminization of our culture has gone. Uh, I'm generalizing and I'm not speaking about anybody's daughters in particular who may be just as hard-headed and rational as everybody else, but generally uh, the aversion to risk, the, the unwillingness to think rationally about problems and being emotionally driven uh, and, and, and cautious, uh, susceptible to fear. You know, James Damore, this, this poor, smart computer scientist at Google was fired in 2017 for writing a fact-based 10-page memo suggesting that 
sexism may not be the reason why there's not 50-50 male-female gender ratios in, in Google's engineering and computer science departments. This memo apparently made Google's female employees feel so unsafe that he had to be fired. Now, one thing that DeMore did in this memo was quote something that has been known for decades by psychology, which is that one of the so-called big five traits of human psychology, the personality traits, one of them is known, sadly, the phrase got DeMore canceled, as neuroticism, that is sort of a, a, a fearful personality, uh, fearful of risk, seeing threats everywhere. And psychiatrists have observed for years that females score much higher on the neuroticism scale than males do. What we've been living through for the last two years is an outbreak of hysterical neuroticism. We have accepted our leaders imposing completely arbitrary limits on economic Mm -hmm. activity. They would pour numbers out, pull numbers out of the hat. You know, Cuomo, there he was with his tier. They've all come up with their colored tiers with utterly arbitrary numbers. And if the, you know, if the infection rate is 5%, then you can't do anything. If it's 10%, you can do nothing. And if it's 20%, you have to dig your ground, dig a hole in the ground and stay there. They were making these things up, and yet the populace went along with it. And, and we see now people, you know, willing to, to play this game. And, and to go back to something I was saying, it, it's about fear, but it's also about power. That is sort of the second level of a conspiracy-type explanation that I'm less willing to undertake, but I can't avoid it at this point. It allows not just authorities power over citizens, but it allows citizens power over each other. You know, mm-hmm. they, we've all been yes. rebuked by the max Nazis. And that is, that is inebriating. You know, we don't always have power. And it's, it's a, it's a rush. It's a thrill to be able to order other people around. And so that's part of it as well, is that COVID has deputized everybody to feel justified in in enforcing mandates that are not just draconian, but utterly irrational. Mm -hmm. And even Biden, who knows, he knows he has no power to issue a federal mask mandate for the country. And you're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. We both know that's not possible given our system of federalism. And he he didn't just come out and say, no, I can't do it. He said, oh, well, you know, it doesn't necessarily look like it's in my wheelhouse, but, you know, we're looking at it. We're looking at it. Well, it should be a very short look, sir, because you don't have the power. But to your point, there's almost nothing they look at now and outright rule out. Like, look what he just did on the on the eviction uh, moratorium. He said, I can't do it. And then he did it. Now we've got the possibility of a federal mask mandate everywhere. Are you kidding? Not just on the federal properties or the TSA or what have you. I mean, there will be a revolt in the country if he tries something like that. Well, I hope so. We haven't seen it yet. Europe is odd because they've had even more insane rules than than here. The ones I, I find particularly ludicrous are radius rules, you know, that you can't go beyond five kilometers or 10 kilometers of your house. 
which doesn't make sense. Like if you think this is a big threat, you would want dispersion. You wouldn't want everybody clustered in, <laughs> in population centers. But, but like, is the idea that beyond 20 or 10 kilometers outside of your house, the COVID just becomes really dense and oh my God, you're going to die. <laughs> so they've had these really ridiculous rules. On the other hand, they have had massive protests there. I mean, the pictures are stunning. They're filling all of Berlin, all of Munich, all of Paris. And except for those first, you know, outbreaks in Michigan when when Whitmer was deciding that you could buy lawn fertilizer but not a lawn chair or vice or paint mm-hmm. and not and That's not right. you know an oven mitt or something. Uh, there's been relatively little pushback, I think. Maybe because there's sort of we have more safety valves with the red states being more rational when it comes to this, so people could feel like they have the exit option from their from their blue state tyranny. But I I hope that there will be uh, a revolt because, as I say, I'm just sick of this. And I would Mm -hmm. think everybody would be sick of this. But have they forgotten what normal life was like? Mm -hmm. But but the masks are just infuriating, infuriating. And and I've said from the start that the reason that they want us to wear masks outdoors is because it, it deputizes every American and turns them into a walking billboard of fear. If you see everybody wearing masks outdoors, your natural conclusion is that we are surrounded by death. And, and mm-hmm. so it's, it's important to, to, to have a visual representation. To get back to the Wilfred Riley article that you brought up and, and, and us living in kind of a post-data world, what I've noticed is we're living in a world of fictional simulations this hyper reality that is at odds with reality. What was the three months of razor wire around the Capitol, but security theater? It was theater to try and give reality and factual basis to a fiction. The fiction is that white supremacy is the biggest terrorist threat facing this country and is it a, is our biggest threat of violence. As, as Biden's security agencies have said, that is ludicrous, Megan. You know it. Most people know it. And yet we had this, this drama, this, this staged piece of theater that the Capitol was engaged in to try to pretend that the idiotic, deplorable, absolutely despicable January 6th riot was not just a one-off of a bunch of idiots that got out of control, completely misunderstood their role of citizens, but represented some ongoing lethal threat, which it it does not. It's the same thing with the idea that it's white supremacists who were going around clubbing Asian, elderly Asian helpless people. That's why the press jumped on the Atlanta spa killings, turned them into what they were not, pretended it was about white supremacy when it was about a young man who was sexually tortured by guilt, uh, had nothing to do with race or, or the Asian nature of his victims. But that too was another piece of security theater to give meaning and, and some kind of physical reality to the lie that America today is defined by white supremacy. Yes. And if you look at I think that may be one of the things that my memory serves that Wilfred looks at in that piece of the um, 
is the attacks on Asians and how that got blamed on white supremacy. And if you look at just the past year, the number of attacks on Asians prior to this past year, it was kind of most most of the attacks were black on Asian as you break it down by race. But it was about kind of a 27 percent black, 24 percent white perpetrators. Let's just acknowledge that, that is vastly disproportionate because the black population is 13 percent. The white population is about 60, 60, 65 percent. Mm. So, you know, if yes. OK, got- I pulled it up. Here it is, Heather, from his article. He says, um, OK, according to the most recently available national crime data that involves Asian-American victims, 27.5 percent of violent attackers were black, 24.1 percent were white. 24.4% yeah. were Latino and other combined, and 24.1% were Asian, Asian on Asian crime. In a separate data set focused only on the 98 most prominent recent attacks on Asian Americans, he says uh, he found that uh, 29% of the attackers who are identified in racial terms, uh, 71% were people of color. That's what it was. 71% were people of color. So the numbers go way up when you look at what's happened this past year. But of course, that's all white supremacy. Up next, I'm going to ask Heather about AOC's latest statement about how traumatic January 6th was, but she loves to talk about January 6th and her trauma. It's all about her and her trauma. Oh, and white supremacy. What does Heather think of that? Next. Can I just jump back to the January 6th thing with you for a minute? Because it is true that the left and people like AOC and the media love to, to go back to it. I mean, they cannot get enough of January 6th and the trauma and the report. We're, we're actually seeing news reports on journalists and their ongoing trauma. Some talking about how they the, the Capitol building, building was like their girlfriend. And now they have to go back in every day. And, and like just it's so triggering and they can barely do it. And then you've got people like AOC, who every day wakes up and thinks of another imaginary crime that could have happened to her, even though she wasn't in the relevant building during the attack. And here is her latest offering in an interview with CNN's Dana Bash. I think one of the reasons why that impact was so doubled that day is because of of the misogyny and the racism that is so deeply rooted and animated um, that attack on the Capitol. You know, white supremacy and patriarchy are very linked in a lot of ways. There's a lot of sexualizing of that violence. And um, I didn't think that I was just going to be killed. I thought other things were going to happen to me as well. So what sounds like what you're telling me right now is that you didn't only think that you were going to die. You thought you were going to be raped. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was. Are you joking? No, it's a, it's part of a CNN puff piece. It's called like being AOC or something. They're doing a long like documentary on her. So now Dana Bash does an AOC puff piece involving, I thought I was going to be raped. I thought I was going to be killed and white supremacists and all the misogyny and you name it. But wasn't she the one that was not even in the building? It claimed she yes. was. Turns out of she course. was in the, 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 the Ray Barn office building or something. It's amazing. They're just shameless. There's That's the biggest set of non sequiturs I have ever heard. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They can take any event now. Like I'm buying yogurt at the store. That's about white supremacy. It's just because they are obsessed. They were. They do not want to talk about the actual problems. Uh, the biggest problem we have today is the academic skills gap. Every 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 academic standard, every behavioral standard, every criminal standard has disparate impact. The left does not want to address that problem, and so instead they have made 
the search for white racism, the dominant uh, uh, activity of the elite establishment, whether it's in academics, whether it's corporations, law firms, banks, big tech, you name it. Uh, I mean, come on, this this January 6th riot had nothing to do with racism, sexism, misogyny. It was a bunch of people who believed that the election was stolen. I happen to not believe that. I am not persuaded by any evidence that there was systemic rigging going on. There was mistakes, I'm sure, made. There was perhaps garden variety fraud, but I don't believe it was rigged. But they seriously believe that. And and uh, they believe that the government was illegitimate. Therefore, it's it's a it's an epistemological problem because those of us who who criticize that action often do so from the perspective that the rigging narrative was wrong. But if if you really believe it, I mean, if, if you believe Trump words, then things are very seriously askew. That doesn't give you license yeah. to tear the Capitol down. In any case, that's what this it's is a, about. But it's a disinformation um, problem. That's your point. It's a disinformation problem. That's how I see it, too. They they got sucked down to, into YouTube rabbit holes. It seemed that that's what's happening with COVID on a lot of the, the disinformation that's out there. It doesn't mean I think right. it should be censored, but certainly it's happening. And right. they started to believe that he really he really was going to become the president. And all they had to do was show up at the Capitol and take their country back and so on, whatever. It doesn't mean that there were no white supremacists there, but it wasn't about white supremacy. They want to turn everything into white supremacy. What's going on, all you have to do to take down an individual or an institution today, Megan, is use one fatal word, white. That's it. Uh, We are now seeing every accomplishment, every summit of sublimity that Western civilization has given us torn down in the name of fighting phantom white supremacy. I've been following a lot what's been going on with something that is the dearest thing to my heart, which is classical music. Uh, but the I've logic of the you black- on this. You, this is this is as if you needed another reason to read Heather. The the stuff you because I don't follow this world at all, and the stories coming out of the music world, thanks to you, are shocking. Sorry, go ahead. What's happening to classical music is worthy in its own right, if if you love this tradition, but it is also emblematic of of the strategy and tactics that are being used to take everything down. The claim is, is that the classical music profession currently is racist and it's discriminating against black musicians, a claim that is patently ludicrous on his face because every orchestra auditions musicians behind a screen. So nobody, the, the people choosing the musician do not know that musician's sex or race. So somehow that now has been turned into racism. The fact because it's all about outcome. It's they don't care about intent. All they care about is quote impact. So if the numbers in the orchestra don't adequately, in somebody's random view, reflect diversity by necessity under critical race theory, under Ibram X. Kendi's view of the world, it's racist. Right. But but so those of us that have held on to some shred of respect for evidence know that that's a ludicrous claim because you can't be colorblind uh, and not know somebody's race and still be discriminating against him because of his race. I mean, let's just let's just assert that Kendi notwithstanding. But the other claim against classical music is that the composers in that tradition were overwhelmingly white and therefore they all are defined by white supremacy 
but anything coming out of Europe, whether it's art history or, or architecture or, or science for that matter, because of the demographics of Europe, will be overwhelmingly black, uh, white, excuse me. There simply were no blacks in Europe of any number uh, until the 20th century, the late 20th century. And so that gesture, that rhetorical gesture, though, gives people the power to simply cancel entire traditions. Nobody uses the same logic when it comes to canceling African drum music, which is exclusively black, or Indian, East Indian classical music, which was created by and for and with Indians or Chinese classical opera. It's only the demographics of Europe that are used against it. And what is particularly preposterous, Megan, the, the extraordinary thing about the Western classical tradition, partly because it's notated, it's written, the fact that it's based on written scores allowed for stylistic development over 500 years that is simply mind-blowing. The difference between a, a Renaissance motet and Stravinsky, or even between a Bach passion and a Chopin nocturne is galaxies away. These are each composer is extraordinarily individual in the pathos, the longing, the eros that he has brought to the world. And we are allowed to follow the movement of the human mind through his music to, to, to unite all of these into one thing, which is just whiteness, shows mm. such ignorance, such aesthetic blindness and deafness. It is mind blowing. But that is the logic. Whatever you love, if it has come out of Europe, it is coming down under that logic. And so we better be prepared, Megan, to stop kowtowing to this and say, this is not about race. This is about greatness and creation. And we are not going to cancel our culture. Yeah. And the beauty of humanity and the amazing works that have been produced over the years that it's so crazy that we've gotten to this place where if there's any racial disparity at all in any industry, the answer is to throw out anything created by a white person. And this this manifested itself, well, many times, but you wrote an article on June 10th called Resisting Racial Demagoguery. And I highly recommend that everybody read it, City Journal. Um, and it's about what happened with the Tulsa Opera and a composer named Daniel Bernard Romain. Is that how you pronounce it? So. Can you tell the audience what happened with Daniel Romain? Well, Daniel Romain is the epitome of the Black Lives Matter activist in classical music today. His career is based on race baiting. Uh, he, he writes works like, uh, I am a white person who blank black people, meaning, you know, write in who detests them, who oppresses them, who subjugates them. Uh, and he is, he is called for orchestras to exclusively program black artists. He, he wants to write a, a, a work for exclusively BIPOC, that's Black, Indigenous, people of color, members of a orchestra. In other words, let's put it baldly, uh, Daniel Romain is a racist. Uh, he, yeah, he, right. he believes that Blacks should, should take precedence over all things. So he was invited to participate in a concert that the Tulsa Opera was planning to commemorate the hundred, the centennial of 
1921 race riots in Tulsa, which were horrific uh, after a still undetermined uh, incident happened between a, a black and a white teenager. Uh, there was some gunfire that broke out on the part of blacks. And then the white mob rampaged through the Greenwood section of Tulsa, which was then the business, black business and residential section of Tulsa and burning buildings. And the, the uh, official uh, report found that there was probably about 26 blacks who were dead. The media reports hundreds, you know, who knows what the reality. In any case, this was a concert that was going to have eight black singers singing works by 23 living black composers, as well as spirituals, uh, you know, traditional black folk songs. And Romaine was given one of the plum commission assignments of four, they were gonna commission four new works. He got one of them and he was gonna write for Denise Graves, who was one of the great sopranos of the 1990s and 2000s. She made her Met debut as Carmen. That performance, you know, went around the world. Uh, she was highly uh, sought after for, for many, many years. Any composer would kill to compose something for Denise Graves. So Romaine, uh, you know, uh, compatibly with his attitude towards life, wrote a piece called They Still Want to Kill Us, uh, which was all about what he calls the enduring stain of racial hatred in the American white American psyche. And it ended with the lines, uh, God bless America, God damn America. Well, Denise Graves, who is black, uh, said that the final line as, as much as she believes in Black Lives Mattering and, and supporting Black artists, did not accord with her personal values. And so the uh, pianist for the, for the planned orchestra uh, concert, who's Black himself, Howard Watkins, he's an assistant conductor at the Metropolitan Opera, and the head of Tulsa Opera, a, a, a composer named Tobias Picker, tried to negotiate with Romaine saying, can you change that last line in some way that would make it possible for Denise Graves to sing it? And he remained, put his foot down, said no way. Uh, and, and Graves would not do it because it did not accord with her understanding of America and racial reconciliation. So they canceled the aria, they paid Romaine his fee, and he immediately turned around and did what Romaine does best, which is play the race card. He actually said, that the cancellation of his opera was tantamount to the race riot in Greenwood, that he was the victim of similar right, white supremacy. Never mind the fact that it was Denise Graves who was black who refused to sing this, and it was to buy it was uh, Howard Watkins, the pianist who was the go-between. He blamed everything on Tobias Picker. He said, "This is what happens when white males run." Uh, music organizations. They should not do so. Uh, this this is about a white trying to oppress me. This is a completely false narrative. So he then got the work uh, produced, performed on video. I've listened to it. You can see it online. Uh, a black soprano, Janae Bridges, who's very involved in the Black Lives Matter in the opera movement, sang it. The lyrics are pathetic. The musical writing is insipid. A composer suggested to me that one reason why Denise Graves may have balked at singing it was just because it's lousy music. Um, but the, the irony is, is that it actually probably helped remain because the concert that did come forward, 
called Greenwood Overcomes was fantastic. Uh, the works that were uh, played there by such black artists as Adolphus Hailstroke and Tanya Leon and Quinn Mason were gorgeous. Amazingly, very only one of them even touched on the Tulsa riots and, and racial animosity. Most of them were songs of love, songs of loss, songs of consolation. And the Remain piece, not just because of its political valence, which is remains right, I mean, that's right, but really because of its musical mediocrity would have been quite out of place there. The great, the ending of this story that, that does give one maybe a shred of hope, and I'm not usually an optimist, is that Tulsa Opera is still standing. What we're seeing in the classical music world today and in the theater world and in the ballet world is supine subjugation. Every mm -hmm. institution is rolling over and playing dead, beating its chest. Oh, we're racist, we're racist. There, every, every new play on Broadway this season is by a black composer, a black uh, uh, creator. They may be great plays, but you know, they're, let's be honest about why they've been commissioned. Tulsa Opera did not cave and it is it is moving forward as strong as ever. And I wish that more of the guardians and curators of our culture would show similar courage instead of staying silent in the face of these utterly ungrounded, ignorant attacks that, again, are destroying the very thing that makes life worth living, which is the creation of beauty and sublimity. It's unbelievable. This, the whole story is unbelievable. And in the piece, there was one piece you talked about how um, in the summer of 2020, this same composer, this guy Rumain, he'd been complaining on Facebook and reading from your piece about the lack of racial proportionality in orchestras. And that's when a retired principal violinist from the Detroit Symphony Orchestra offered to tutor minority musicians in audition techniques. Very nice of this guy, right? He's like, okay, I didn't know that was a problem. I'm, I'm there. Uh, and he said, just, you know, help me secure the introductions. I'm good. The offer went nowhere, you write. And can you tell us why Romain rejected the offer of this violinist, Alexander uh, Mishnevsky? Yeah, he's, he's Russian because he apparently wasn't willing to sort of take the Black Lives Matter line uh, when he was tutoring these these musicians. It was it was just not sufficiently attuned to the black struggle today. And Mishnevsky <laughs> was he was the principal violist of the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. He is a, a, a musician with years of experience uh, overseeing auditions. He would have been an invaluable aid to up and coming minority string players. And yet, Romain didn't want to use him. You know, the culture seems to be going one way, but more and more we see warriors standing up to, to fight, to become fighters. Remember how Dennis Prager told us you need to be a fighter? or at least a helper, we'll introduce you to one fighter next in a great, great soundbite and get Heather's reaction. We are starting to see more and more people like the, uh, the Tulsa uh, Opera push back against some of these bullying attempts. Really? Just in the news yesterday, a little bit, here and there. And I don't know if it's so much corporate America, right? I mean, Chris Rufo, God bless Chris Rufo and his great reporting, but he had a report just yesterday about American Express and its critical race theory training of its employees. And it was just absurd what they're making people do. It's it's all the stuff that we've heard. Um, I It was basically they have to divide themselves into oppressor and oppressed. Uh, they've figured out where they are in the racial or sexual disparity scale and oppression scale. 
And then they they have to read certain books or follow certain podcasts that are going to help educate them on white supremacy in America, including one that says um, something like children are not colorblind. And it's I went and looked at it. It's all about how your baby six months out of the womb is already becoming a racist and needs an intervention. You need a little Robin D'Angelo for babies, I guess. Um, so anyway, but we are little by little seeing signs of hope, I think. And one of them yesterday came out of Loudoun County, you know, which has been sort of ground zero on teachers and parents trying to push back against critical race theory. We've seen angry clips out of school board um, meetings. By the way, there they just they just pushed through some uh, approval of transgender or just unisex bathrooms, I guess, allowing that to happen. So, you know, they, they it's not all going one way. But there was a Loudoun County teacher who showed up at a board meeting because she'd been told she wasn't allowed to really say how she felt. She says no dissent to the to the CRT training and messaging in the schools is allowed that she was told she's not allowed to even object to it. So this is a young woman. She shows up to speak to the board. Nobody else is there because given all the troubles there, they they took the covid problems as an excuse to say, oh, no, no one else can come. And she shows up in an empty room. With the board sitting there, somebody filmed it and said in part as follows. Listen. My name is Laura Morris. I have been a teacher in Loudoun County Public Schools for five years. This summer, I have struggled with the idea of returning to school, knowing that I'll be working yet again with a school division that, despite its shiny tech and flashy salary, promotes political ideologies that do not square with who I am as a believer in Christ. Within the last year, I was told in one of my so-called equity trainings that white, Christian, able-bodied females currently have the power in our schools and that, quote, this has to change. Clearly, you've made your point. You no longer value me or many other teachers you've employed in this county. School board, I quit. I quit your policies. I quit your trainings. And I quit being a cog in a machine that tells me to push highly politicized agendas on our most vulnerable constituents, the children. Fantastic. Listen, conservative philanthropists, where are you? Find that woman, create a school around her. There's others like her. We have to create alternative institutions. Uh, and, you know, she will be still standing. I'm sure she will be able to get a job. More people have to step forward and be willing to live through the Twitter mob. You know, in most cases, they can't take you down. On the other hand, you know, let's notice that there have been plenty of people who have been fired. James Bennett, you know, infamously from the New York Times editorial board for running an op-ed by Tom Cotton, claiming calling for a federal response to the riots of 2020 that made black, apparently running that editorial made black employees at the at the New York Times feel unsafe. So yes, people have lost their jobs. There's no question about it. But at some point, if enough people stand up, uh, we are going to unmask this ideology. What really has to happen, Megan, though, right now, the only allowable explanation for socioeconomic disparities is bias. That is yeah. what's driving everything today in our culture. That's why everything is coming down is because, as you say, there is not 13%, 12% black representation at Sullivan and Cromwell law firm, at, at Gibson Dunn Crutcher law firm, at, at Google, at Microsoft, because the average black 12th grader reads at the level of the average white eighth grader. The vast majority of, of black eighth graders do not have even partial mastery of math and reading skills. 
a gap that does not close. There's a standard deviation uh, of, of accomplishment on virtually every type of colorblind standardized objective test. And, and, but we're not allowed to talk about those gaps. We're not allowed to talk about the crime gap. Instead, any disparity, as you say, is chalked up to racism. And as, as long as that is the only explanation in the public sphere, the left wins. The left will continue destroying meritocratic standards, which you brought up earlier, that every standard is coming down because they all have a disparate impact. That's not because the standards are racist. It's because there are different skills levels that need to be eradicated before we can expect proportional representation. So, so let's talk about America, that. What, dri- what drives that? What drives it? Because I've, I've heard, I mean, I've heard, I had a gr- I heard a great debate between Glenn Lowry and I think it was um, Brianna Joy Gray. And um, she was accusing him of being too focused on black culture, saying, you know, it's not a bootstrap situation. And she was saying um, it's it's poverty driven by large part. You know, she was saying, yes, there are definitely some racist structures, but she's not really a BLM type person. She's not like a woke activist, Brianna. And she was saying, if you look at sort of the poverty situation in America and how most black kids are raised and they don't have full bellies when they go to school and that's distracting and so on and so forth. But I mean, she to me, I, I was like, Okay, she's persuading me that this is a real factor. And how do we solve that? I don't know, Heather. I haven't studied it. But what what do you say is causing that disparity? Chinese immigrant children come to this school. You know, there's a book by Ying Ma of, I forget what it's called now, Chinese Girl in the Ghetto or something, who came to Oakland. Her parents had nothing. Uh, she was in a predominantly Black school. She succeeded. Her, her classmates overall did not. I'm sure there were many exceptions because her parents absolutely oversaw her education. They were fanatically dedicated to academic accomplishment. She was not allowed to hang out on the streets at 2 a.m. She was not involved in drugs. She was not involved in gangs. The idea of poverty, I'm I'm in conversation now with a teacher in the Los Angeles Unified School District who is not too happy about the uh, race, white privilege training that they've been uh, having to take online. The, the grading rubrics, which don't allow you to assign Fs or, or penalize somebody for, for not turning in any homework or doing any tests. Uh, and she points out that the schools that she's taught in, the Title I schools that are the poor populations, are awash in resources, whereas there's a charter school uh, in Studio City that has a lot of Hollywood uh, kids there that has no money at all. The parents do all the fundraising. They have no computers. You know, the, the, the poor schools have one computer per student. I mean, Heather, so if you became president of the United States next time around, um, how would you start on something like that? What's issue number one to tackle? I guess I'm not a policy wonk by instinct. I'm not sure that there's a lot of policy that we can do. You know, the policy wonks like to tweak tax credits, and we now have this absurd idea of the government paying uh, families for having children with whether or not they're working or not, which is just returning us to the the destructive regime of of free welfare for all. Uh, I I think what has to happen is really a cultural shift. So I guess I would use every bully pulpit I could to say that children need on average mothers and fathers, that males are not toxic, 
Uh, I would stop the demonizing of males in our culture. We have been taken over by the feminist ideology that says that strong women can do it all. We regard fathers as as, as sort of optional appendages to a family. Uh, and, 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 you know, the APA, the American Psychology Association, I referred, you know, previously to its work on the big five personality traits and neuroticism. I can guarantee you if they were doing that same study today, they would not come up with that uh, observation, which is true, because now it has gone as left as anything else. And several years ago, it, it had a whole new sort of diagnostic sickness, which was maleness, you know, that the, mm-hmm. the, the Traits of self-reliance and competition are toxic and pathological. I mean, we really are disappearing males from this culture. And the male-creating institutions have all been taken over. The idea of putting females in combat units is, is suicidal if you care about defense because you're going to introduce eros into those combat units. The only reason we're doing that is in order to qualify more females to be four-star generals. It has nothing to do with war readiness. Uh, you know, the Boy Scouts have gone under. Uh, so the, the traditional institutions that recognize the male virtues of chivalry and risk-taking, uh, exploration, empire building are being decimated. And... Uh, I, I don't think that bodes well for civilization. But you know what, Megan? Being female is not an accomplishment. It's not even particularly interesting. And the same goes for every other type of identity categoristic ca- characteristic. Uh, but right now we have our science bureaucracies that are rife with this meritocracy-destroying identity politics where we say it's more important that your lab be diverse than that it be the first to develop a final cure for cancer. China, meanwhile, is ruthlessly meritocratic. It, it, it does not look at all at at sex or at ethnicity. Uh, you get one shot at university. You take an exam. It's colorblind. It's objective. And, and they live with the results. They are going mm-hmm. to speed ahead in science and technology uh, unless we can get them somehow infected with the identity politics gene, which will stop their <laughs> progress as well. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's like to to suggest that we don't have the opportunity, women, to get involved in STEM related careers now or university educations is totally absurd. We have more opportunity than any place on Earth. But, you know, Abigail Schreier was pointing out in her book, her beautiful book, Irreversible Damage, and on this show, too, that here's the truth. A lot of women don't want to do that. They don't want to go into those fields. And you know what? Here's the second part. That's okay. That's right. fine. What I object to the fact that now that the opportunity is there, so is the shame on little girls who are like, no, I'm not into that. I don't want to do the science and technology. I want to go read the English literature or I want yeah. a job that involves people and being around, you know, whatever, using my communication skills, reading and talk, what, what have you, the, the, the opera, let's say. And instead, we look at young girls or the messaging is you're less than unless you're going to be tomorrow's scientist. And the other point she was making, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, Heather, was one of the reasons why and this is eye opening for me, too, because I used to lament the fact that there are so few female CEOs at the Fortune 500 and 100 level. And she she offered a different way of looking at it. And as soon as I read it, I was like, oh, that's true. And it was in a lot of cases, women, they're they're too smart for that. <laughs> they, they have prioritized 
their family, their well-being, their friendships, their need to see their friends and the people around them, they are not going to be, they're built differently and they're not going to be okay with 18 hour days, six days a week for years and years and years. And that too is all right. You know, every time your listeners and viewers, Megan, see another one of these damn strong girls can do it all programs that are being funded by the government or by the private sector, by the Ford Foundation, you know, girls who code, uh, you know, uh, science for females, they should be appalled. It is a miracle that any boys are even trying anymore because they are a disappeared population. The idea that, that, that philanthropic and government e efforts still need to focus on females as if they're in a press class, as you say, is ludicrous. When it comes to just sheer college completion, females dominate. They're the dominant population in colleges today. Now, at the outer Law edges too. of right of of math cluelessness and math brilliance, males predominate. They're the they've got the worst math skills and they've got the best math skills at the <laughs> highest ranges of the math SAT. The male to female ratio is about two point five to one. Uh, and so, as Larry Summers acknowledged, and this got him fired from Harvard presidency, uh, there's a different the curves are different in the distribution of math skills. So we do not need to focus more on encouraging females. What we need to do is stop telling males that they are toxic. I noticed, however, Megan, that when you were uh, offering a set of alternative pathways for females to the, you know, either being the CEO or being the uh, the high, the first engineer at Google, uh, and you were saying rightly, study English literature as I did, as I still view as the as the highest calling one could have, or you know, be an opera singer, or or or, or be in the arts world. How about be a mother? You know, that too yeah. should be valorized as a one of the most important things that you could do. I feel extraordinarily privileged that I had a stay-at-home mother who knew the British children's literature classics, who read to me Wind in the Willows and Winnie the Pooh and, and uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland and, and E. Nesbitt that filled my imagination with, with fairies and nature and irony and wit that these great children's books had. Being a mother is a calling as much as anything else. But in the career world, you're absolutely right. I've gone around, Megan, collecting what I call natural experiments to test the theory that it is gatekeepers, that it is misogynist gatekeepers who are excluding females from various institutions. And, and my hypothesis is that that is a bunch of crock. And here's the best refutation of the gatekeeper, the misogynist gatekeeper hypothesis. Wikipedia. Wikipedia is the online encyclopedia that anybody can contribute to, anybody can edit. Nobody knows anybody's identity. It is open to all. There are no gatekeepers. And it is a new institution. It's not as if we have hundreds of years of misogynist Wikipedia tradition that has just told females, <laughs> don't even try. Wikipedia is like, what, 15 years old, 20 years old? So arose in a, in a gender equal environment. Nobody knows who's doing anything. Wikipedia's editors are about 90% male. Nobody is keeping females out. They can go, they're anonymous. Nobody's going to complain about them. The fact of the matter is 
is that males are more interested in public affairs and in data and in their insane, like competitive baseball score, you know, statistics, mm -hmm. which I just can't even follow. But, <laughs> but that, that, you know, and it's the same with letters to the editor, to the newspaper. Nobody's mm -hmm. preventing females from sending in letters to the editor, but they run at least two to one male to female. And, and some do. I mean, the point is, you're not saying that there's no woman who wants to edit on Wikipedia or be a scientist or be a CEO. Now, I'm not saying that either. It's just that the disparity cannot be chalked up universally to sexism and a patriarchy that some women are more masculine in their approach to life and in their makeup and some women aren't. And we're treating them all like they're these disadvantaged little violets who will never advance in life or be happy in life unless they do what the STEM technology says they must and can do. I will tell you, Heather, I, th I thought I've come, I've come a long ways on this because I was raised in a mostly democratic family. Um, my, we were Catholic, so we certainly had some more traditional values. But, uh, you know, politically, I would say my, my family voted Democrat because our belief was that the Republicans were for the rich and we weren't. <laughs> we weren't rich. Um, anyway, I, I was sort of I would say younger in my career, I was much more into the a woman can do it all. I can have it all. I'm I've got this kick ass career. I've got a great husband. I've got three kids. I'm banging life out like this is great. I can do it all. Nobody who says otherwise is right. And it took a, a long time at the height of my career with my three young kids. All right. Now, now they're all here and they're all young and they all need me because I'm the mom and you, you, they do need their mom, period. Um, for me to realize I am, forgive me, fucking miserable. <laughs> this isn't good enough. This isn't OK. I am not OK. I don't care. And a lot of my guy friends, when I said I'm going to leave the Kelly file and I'm, I'm going to go do this morning show, were like, are you insane? You're at the height of power, of influence. People listen to you. You're an authority figure. And all I could say was I'm unhappy and it's not good enough and I'm not going to miss my children's upbringing. Mm -hmm. I want to be the one to do it. I, yep. I knew I didn't want to give up work. I do enjoy working. I love the intellectual stimulation. Um, so I knew that would be an overcorrection to, to just go home and raise them. And nor would I be a good mother if I were with them full time. It's just how I'm made up. Mm -hmm. um, but I, not for one moment, as rocky as my road through NBC was, not for one moment have I regretted leaving that job and having the past, I left in January of 17, you know, having had the past four plus years with them. I can't imagine a different life, Heather. And now mm -hmm. I feel a different responsibility to say to other young women, you know, many of whom listen to my earlier messages, there's so much merit in the other way too. Like, don't be pressured into thinking you must have it all, quote unquote. And don't believe, don't, don't always reject that little voice in the back of your head that's telling you this, this job thing and being at the apex of power that's telling you that's not good enough. That's not good enough. You made three little lives and they need you and you don't get a do-over. And once you cry at their high school graduation, you know, your tears of lament won't do anything for them, for you. You know, it's not worth it doing, breaking another news story on the A block of Fox News to miss yet another recital or a moment to tuck them in at night, all of it, you know? So I, I feel like my journey on this has been, I won't say complete, it's ongoing, but it's been eye-opening. 
Well, that is so fantastic to hear, Megan. And I really hope that everyone is listening to you. And I think they are uh, because the feminist movement is, is engaged in a bunch of complete contradictions. It is illogical. It is, it is unbiological. It is against human nature. The idea that somehow making partner by working, you know, billing those 2,200 hours a year, staying up until 2 a.m., poring over discovery documents and correcting them for typos uh, is, is more important than, as you say, raising those three unique lives is for feminists basically to adopt male values. You know, it's to accept the male version of the world, which is highly competitive, which is status obsessed. Uh, and it's, it's the values which gave us civilization because they led to exploration and, and conquest, which is a, often a very good thing. But, uh, you know, what, and, and yet at the same time, you have feminists claiming that females are different and better from males. Uh, you know, if we all, if we all had female uh, politicians, we wouldn't make war anymore. Maybe so, maybe not. But but they, you know, insist that females are better. And yet when it comes to recognizing specifically female values like empathy and the ability to raise children, they, they refuse to acknowledge those. But right. as you say, there are individual differences. There are plenty of fathers that are far more nurturing than mothers. There are mothers who are Martinet, you know, draconian discipline freaks and, and it's to the father that the child comes running for solace, you know, when the mother said, you idiot, you know, you screwed up on your homework again. But on average, again, both of us, I'm not talking about anybody's daughter. I'm not saying your daughter is not going to be the next Nobel Prize winner in physics. I'm talking about averages and distributions. On average, females, mothers have a different connection to their children and to it, pretend that connection doesn't exist and that child doesn't need it because you want to make partner or or be in the C-suite. Uh, it's your choice, certainly. But but don't claim that that is uh, sort of a a neutral choice. It isn't, in fact, all about politics and about trying to prove something. I, I'm amazed, as you said earlier, Megan, the idea that we're discriminated against is ludicrous. I have never in my life been discriminated against because I'm female. I have been greeted with open arms. I know to the contrary, just as the reality of our world today is black privilege, not white privilege, the reality of our world today is female privilege, not white, not male privilege. I have been put. And we can't go by it, you. You're like one of the most brilliant people alive. You, you can't go by <laughs> your own experience. That's not okay. We got to pick a more average target. <laughs> no, what I'm saying is, I've been put on panels. I've been chosen to speak because I'm a female. Because they want that yeah, female. Yes, yes, it's not because of my qualifications. That my qualifications are not particularly impressive. But I actually had a producer from Fox invite me onto one of their Fox Nation things. It was on like interest rates or something, which I do not know anything beyond what I barely surmise in the in the uh, newspaper. And this female producer actually admitted to me. I said, it's because I'm a female. And she admitted that is the case. Females no. are being advanced. You know, we have now this phenomenon in science, uh, a, a, a stigma against mantles. A mantle is a predominantly male scientific panel. 
and no less than the head of the National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins, who has been going around for the last year beating his chest about how, how science is so systemically racist. He also thinks it's systemically misogynist. And he has declared that he will not attend any scientific conference. I don't care if it's got the most cutting edge researchers on COVID or Alzheimer's or, or, or autism if the researchers are predominantly male. And so you know that if there's a conference under the auspices of the NIH and it's 50% female, you have no idea whether those are most qualified scientists. You only know that mm. they're there because of their, of their, because of their gonads and their sex. And that yeah. is the reality in our world that today. That is undermining too. Right, exactly. That's, that's just the same problem with it. We've talked about it with other guests too on affirmative action, right? It's like a lot of black scholars resent it right. because they get tarred with this, you, you check the box sort of judgment that may or may not be fair at all. And, and even kids who did check the box get it. And, and you're sort of up against it right from the start, right? Like you're seen as sort of maybe not equal, not less, uh, not, not as good as, that you're less than, you didn't belong there. It raises all sorts of issues that are ongoing for those kids when they actually get into the schools. Don't leave me now. We got more coming up in 60 seconds. This is a good time to, to probably inject some of the Me Too conversation, which I know <laughs> you and I too have been critical of. But yeah. But without using the label Me Too, right, because that brings up so much, I maintain that the heart of that movement, you know, that in a way I was a part of was good, you know, putting a stop or at least empowering women to feel like they had a safe way of objecting to their bosses, pawing them physically. I mean, committing crimes, really, uh, in, in exchange for professional advancement or just the maintenance of one's job was a good thing. It, it had been going on for a long time and it, and it needed an avenue out for women that was meaningful as opposed to just you got to suck it up and let them grab your boob if you want to get that, if you want to keep your job. And that's why it's a case by case situation, right? You got to look at each one and say, I don't believe her. I do believe her. And that's totally fine. Um, but that's why I was happy to see Andrew Cuomo go down this week. Um, I thought he should have gone down over the nursing home scandal, but no one seemed to want to pay att any attention to that. As they just wanted to run cover for him. And when the women started coming forward, I was glad to see it because I wanted him to go down. I, I was open about my bias. My my closest friend is Janice Dean, who's been sort of leading the way. Um, but I also read their accounts and I thought this guy should not be sitting in the governor's mansion. You don't you don't grab your assistant's breast and her bottom and shove your tongue down her throat and grab the belly of a state trooper who's protecting it, all the stuff he allegedly did and keep that post. This is gross. But I'd love to know what your thoughts are as somebody who's been skeptical of the movement. Yes. Uh, and I respect your viewpoint enormously, Megan. I've mostly been a solo worker, so I've not been in that type of office environment and and have not experienced that kind of behavior. And I would never uh, purport to question your experience with that kind of oppression. Uh, but I will say, you know, I'm I'm glad, too, that uh, Cuomo has had his downfall. Just listening to his, I, I, I put myself through the torture of listening to his COVID uh, conferences at the start of the pandemic in March and April, and they were simply unbearable. The man is such a narcissist, and he he was so wallowing in, in this unjustly uh, granted uh, celebrity and whatnot, and, and obviously thinks that every word out of his mouth is is brilliant, and we were subjected to little tales of his Italian grandma that got 
recycled multiple times and his children and oh it was unbearable nevertheless i will say <laughs> i i do differ with you on the on me too in politics i'll have to say uh which is that i think that that human life is in different domains i think there's the domain of eros male female relations and then there's the public realm of politics of leadership and i don't think that one is relevant to the other. Let me let me put another thought experiment to you. If it turned out that uh, you know some of our greatest founding fathers, I'll, I'm just pulling a name out of the hat, James Madison. And again, believe me, this is a hypothetical. It is not based in reality. I'm just I'm just positing a thought experiment. What if it turned out that James Madison was a skirt chaser, and you know he pawed his wife's maid? Would we think that it would be better? It would have been better for the country that he be ejected from a leadership position in drafting the Federalist Papers, in drafting the Constitution, in creating the most unique at that time architecture for public life, for government life. Because when it came to the private realm of Eros, he acted like an entitled male and you know, gave in to his uh, sexual lust. I don't think that's a fair trade-off. I, I think that it is well, a... Well, I, I, I don't disagree with that. But what, what if you took it further and said he was a rapist? You know, let's let's take that to a, a, a greater extreme and say he was running around raping women, hurting, like severely hurting women. Then I'd say, yeah, he's got to go. We could find somebody else just like him. There were a lot of great guys back then. Yeah, and I guess I would say there uh, that I would not have a special category for crimes against women, I would say criminals. I just, I, I just, I'm sick of the, uh, you know, the the idea that that females are a particular category that should have, you know, hate crimes around them or be treated specially. So, yeah, if he's if he's a serial criminal, uh, then he's not a good uh, person to be involved in the creation of a government. But short of that, short of somebody going around and criminally raping people, and I would stick really much to uh, a traditional definition of rape. I think a lot of, I certainly do not think that what's going on on campuses fits that definition. These are acquaintances. No, and I recommend that chapter of your book, The, the Diversity Delusion to People, because it, it does call out, I mean, we can be honest about crimes and power dynamics without classifying everything as a sexual assault. I mean, we can, you know, and it's like, look, women are now they classify so much on college campuses as an assault. It can be, it can literally be a man just touching your arm when you don't want him to. And it's ruinous for the men who get accused and especially with no due process, thanks to Obama. And now once again, Biden's trying to be, bring it back. I see all that, but I do think the character of a, of a person does matter. And I don't know. I mean, like JFK cheating on his wife, that's not really something I have much interest in. You know, even Bill Clinton cheating on his wife. I don't know if I have much interest in it. I mean, it's salacious. So I'm interested as a human, but I don't know that I I would have wanted him bounced out of office had I been one of the a senator at the time. Um, but I think when it when it shows a pattern of abuse and certainly when job advancement is conditioned on submission, that's such an abuse of power that he's got to go. He's got to go. Yeah, I, 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 and I'm not sure that this is a real distinction. I'm making it in my mind and it may, it may be completely uh, collapsed, but I would say there's a difference between employment relations and then political 
accomplishment. And my point is really mixing. I think it is a it's a narcissistic gesture on the part of feminists to say that the what I think is sort of more the personal realm of 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 sexual ambiguity between males and females of the of the constant sort of probing, seeing what what is their reciprocal interest, even if there's not reciprocal interest. I mean, look at I know that the just obnoxious self-involvement of of males who like to be the most unattractive people in the world and they keep pushing it's like are you kidding me look at you guy you know you think you, you really think this isn't going to get you anywhere you're attractive but but to take that realm and to take down male politicians because as i say the ability to negotiate the ability to maybe be a great uh diplomat to be over you know dealing with cold war politics to understand leverage to be able to figure out solutions, compromises among warring parties, that is a different skill. And it, it's a male skill. It's also a female skill. I'm not saying it's exclusively male, but traditionally it has been predominantly male. I, I just think that the fact that somebody, when he's back in the office, is eyeing somebody's butt is just not relevant to his ability to lead this country out of perhaps, you know, tortuous geopolitical situation or domestic situation. Um, but how so, can they leave him? Let, let's say we accept the allegations of all these women against Cuomo. This is interesting to me. I, I like this discussion. Let's say we accept because he's both right. He's a politician who's doing things in the political world. But then back the women he allegedly harassed, many of them are employees, right? They, that is the employment situation. So the right. the, the num- number one accuser, number one was a uh, his executive assistant, you know, a young woman who says he grabbed her breast underneath her blouse, grabbed her behind and among other things. Um, it's not like he can't do his job as governor, having done those things, but you can't. He he has two hats. And as as somebody who's at the top of the government and the staff in the government, how could we knowingly leave him there to keep doing that to woman after woman when we we know how difficult it makes the it is for the women, what a spot it puts them in, you know, that it's not legal. It's not lawful for him to do it. So you can't just say, ah, oh, well, he's really good at the, you know, the other stuff. And we're going to ignore this other lane. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's very, very complicated. And so were they to bring an employment complaint, uh, you know, that may be the counterpart to impeachment. I don't know. So I'm I'm sort of dealing with just sort of the abstract categories here. You're getting rightly so into the uh, complexities of trying to deal with the situation as it is. I'm just stating as a general principle, uh, I I don't think that we should say that somebody's political career uh, should be decimated because he doesn't always keep his hands for himself. And you've also posited, which is absolutely right to do so. Um, saying, let's assume arguendo that that all of these allegations are absolutely accurate. We know darn well that that is a risky assumption to make. But I'm changing yeah, I'm changing the slant here. But you know, at one point, he I think it's undisputed that one female says to him, you know, during one of these encounters, well, you'll get us in trouble. To me, that kind of line sounds like somebody who's complicit. And you know, he claims that there was flirtatiousness on the other side. And again, let's be realistic. Uh, the power dynamics work both ways. And mm-hmm. females know that very is also well. That true. 
how to play their sexual attractiveness uh, for advancement and for uh, favors uh, or favoritism on the part of males. So I just, I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that it is as cut and dried. And, and, you know, I think we should be very, very wary given what we've seen with the campus rape allegations and, and Kavanaugh and whatnot, but, but you're, you're perfectly within your rights to say, uh, let's posit that they're all correct. Then what do you do? And, um, and, but I, I would also then insist that, and I'm not accusing you of not doing this, that let's imagine that Cuomo was a politician who understood the beauty of commerce, who understood the grandeur of individual enterprise and entrepreneurship, uh, who was not willing to subject the struggling small restaurants in in New York City and Mm -hmm. state to completely arbitrary shutdown orders, uh, who was willing to speak about opportunity and the fact that students and of personal responsibility, you know, would we still say that he should go because he was too handsy? And I felt the same thing. You know, I thought the effort against Biden was ridiculous. I think that that really was a case of an old school politician who was handsy. And I was disappointed to see conservatives jumping on that and blowing out of proportion. I mean, I remember pictures at the time that 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 conservative websites and 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 even you know uh, anchors at Fox News were showing of Biden with two 80 year old women with his hands around them, and they were saying that was an instance of sexual harassment. But there is a creepy strain to him, Heather. Come on, I'm sorry. There's something weird with him sniffing the hair, or making the weird comments about the young girls. I'm telling you, if if I were in a room with Biden, I would let him meet my daughter, but I would not necessarily leave her alone in the room. It's not like I, I just think huh. he's a little creepy. Well. Let's be a little bit more tolerant. I mean, that's another sort of feminist uh, trait, and I'm not saying it's yours, but a little brittle. We're we're brittle towards human uh, frailty and the variety of human experience. I guess it's creepy, but there are different spectrums of people that are are more physical with others, and these are politicians that feel maybe... Well, look, if it's me, that's one thing. I can handle myself and always have. If it's my... 10 year old daughter. It's a different story. She, when she gets old enough, she she'll learn. She'll trust me. She'll be at the place where she can handle him just fine. And and guys like, but I agree with you. Listen, I, I, I am all about shoring up strong young women. And I am, I hate when women and men, but really it's, it's a woman thing for the large part resort to playing the victim, you know? And that's, and even in, even though I have been sexually harassed, I don't use that term victim. I'm not a victim. I wasn't anybody's victim. I was the target of a guy who was behaving inappropriately. And, you know, I got, I got through it like most women do and wasn't prepared to make a federal case about it ever, you know, came up many years later because the question was then asked, does he ever do this? And I was in the position of having to say, well, you know, if we're, if we're really putting this to the test, I do have information on it, but that's not to say I want my daughter to be put in the position where she has to handle it. And I certainly think when you're dealing with a boss, you shouldn't have to deal with this bullshit. And I would tell my sons, if you're in a position of power, you got to you got to check that. Is it the ethos? I didn't I, I went to Syracuse. Um, <laughs> is it, You got to check that. Don't you don't don't fish off the company pier because it's totally fraught. And there are power differentials that especially in today's day and age can get you in trouble. So. You know, you go find yourself a nice girl at the bar or at church or at, you know, the mixers. But whatever, I sound like I'm 
200, um, but not not at the office unless it's somebody who's equal to you. Well, I'm going to suggest something, Megan, that I hope you won't mind. But as long as you're still talking about shoring up strong young women, uh, you're giving ground far too much to the left. I, I, I would say you should cancel that as a as a life project entirely and recognize the fact that it is not females who are struggling, gender dysphoria notwithstanding and the herd instinct of changing. It is males who need support and we should be about shoring up strong men because they are really at the, uh, they are society's scapegoats at this point. Uh, but but I will agree with you That's in a good your point, advice. Heather. I will agree That's with a, you in your point. advice to males. Um, you know, I I I'm frankly not all that sympathetic to the males that get caught up on campuses with these ridiculous Me Too sexual assault campus rape charges because they're on notice. You know, yes. they're on notice that if they get drunk and their their partner gets drunk and they get in bed. Uh, they are very likely to be charged with rape, even though they did not tie the girl down and pour drinks down her throat. She got herself drunk and she was involved in the uh, prelude to intercourse. They are assuming risk. And so when they get when the hammer falls on them, uh, they were perfectly forewarned and they have allowed themselves to be carried away by their hormones. And it frankly serves them right. So all sides, I say to hell with them um, here, but, but you're right <laughs> to warn your boys. I mean, they should be celibacy. All these boys should take an oath of celibacy until marriage. I mean, I've said before, if, if my kids decided to wait until marriage, I'd, I'd be just fine with that. But I, I confess, I don't, I don't know that it's realistic. And I know you're not religious. I mean, you're an atheist. I'm not an atheist, but I'm, I'm not particularly religious. Um, so I don't really have that sort of club to hit them with, you know, like God can see you, God, <laughs> but I I'd be fine with it, but I, I don't think it's going to happen. And I do think you can, you can navigate this world by, you know, not, I've said before to, you know, to, to women out there, but it's also true for men. Don't be a hoe, right? like keep right. it in your pants, like fall into a loving relationship, something that's meaningful before you take that that big step. And that's probably the best way of protecting yourself, because someone who loves you is not going to baselessly turn around and accuse you of rape unless she is insane. And ideally, you won't fall in love with an insane person if you've taken the time to figure out who this person is. That's the best prophylactic against finding yourself in that kind of a situation. Now, right. I can't believe that we are at an hour and a half Heather, and I haven't asked you one damn question about the cops, something I've been so fired up about, something you've been amused to me on. I've read your books. I've listened to everything. And yet I, I can't I can't ask you to continue staying here and talking about the cops. So can I at least ask you to come back and we will do a show <laughs> on cops because you're you are like the four the foremost expert on it. You're the person I want most to hear from about the cops. No, you cannot ask me, Megan. I will not come back on your show. Of course you can. Are you crazy? No, I would love to come back. Let's do a part two on law enforcement, crime rates, incarceration, criminal justice, and people like Lori Lightfoot in Chicago and what she has to answer for for what's happening there. Sadly, I feel we could put this off for another year. And uh, unless Biden changes his rhetoric and his policies out of the Justice Department, Nothing will have gotten better and we will have plenty of material to talk about, but hopefully we'll do that before the next year is out. 
Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to hound you until it does happen. Heather, what a pleasure. Such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much, Megan. This has been truly great. And it's, a, it's an honor and privilege to speak with you at such length. Don't miss Monday because we've got Wesley Yang. You know that name? He wrote the big, big bestseller, The Souls of Yellow Folk. But he also, more recently, was interviewed by Andrew Sullivan and appeared in Andrew's column that you know I love, uh, What Happened to You? And he coined that phrase, the successor ideology. And he's another sort of cultural commentator. He's also got his own Substack, who's been able to put into perspective what's happening in our country. Really smart dude and has a way of capturing what's happening on the left right now that I have felt very is very helpful, is personally meaningful. Anyway, he'll be here on Monday, so go ahead and subscribe to the show. Rate the show, five stars, please. And give us a review while you're there on Apple Podcast Reviews, will you? It'll help us out, and it'll give me the chance to see how you guys feel about the show, and I look forward to reading it all. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.